You're listening to Afropunk Solution Sessions. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. And I'm your co-host, Eve Jeffcoat. Afropunk is a safe place, a blank space to freak out in, to construct a new reality, to live our lives as we see fit while making sense of the world around us. Here at Afropunk, we have the conversations that matter to us, conversations that lead to solutions. Hi, everyone. Eve's here again. And this time we have an interview with Matthew Kincaid. You might remember Matthew from the episode Bus Stop and the first episode of the season, Racism is a Virus. This time we want to give you a listen to the full conversation that we had with him, which was really great. And if you don't remember, he's the founder of Overcoming Racism, which is an organization that does race and equity training for institutions with a, a huge focus on education. So here's the conversation. Yeah, you, you made a statement at Solution Sessions where you said racism is like a superbug. It mutates and unchecked grows stronger. So I guess one of the first things that I think about when I hear you say that is like, how do we check racism so it doesn't grow stronger? What are some of the things that we can do to slow or halt the perpetuation of those values throughout generations? That's a really great question <laughs> and not necessarily the easiest question to answer. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we promote at Overcoming Racism is, you know, not, conti- you know, continue, sorry, I'm going to start over. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> one of the things that we promote at Overcoming Racism is that, you know, we can continue to address the symptoms of educational inequity or we can start to address the cause. And I think when we think about challenging, you know, the superbug that is systemic racism, many of the initiatives that exist across the country deal with the outputs or the causes, right? So things like intercommunal violence or um, problems in the criminal justice system or um, lack of access to health care or housing. And while that's all extremely important and those are things that we have to address, you know, if we're going to ever truly root out systemic racism, it has to start with education of ourselves and all of us, you know, across the country, looking in the mirror to think about how was this system created understanding very critically how the system was created, what it was created for, how it's maintained. And through understanding that, we can work to unravel ourselves from it. Um, But that's really challenging because in many ways, systemic racism um, is just as American as apple pie or any other, or baseball or whatever the case may be. And so envisioning an America without racism is um, not easy, but we have to, you know, be able to envision that if we're going to ever work towards that end. It sounds like you're saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that history informs the ways that we deal with racism today a lot. How do we think about, how should we think about our history when we're thinking about overcoming racism? Well, the first thing we have to do is be honest about our history. There are so many false narratives that exist. um, And, you know, one of the reasons why overcoming racism works in schools is because there are so many false narratives that exist around the country starting with how we educate young people about, you know, how America was created. Um, you know, one of the things that is really promoted in the education system is American exceptionalism um, and this notion that America is a great nation or, is, you know, the best nation that exists. And a lot of that narrative uh, doesn't mention, you know, the genocide of Native Americans, the enslavement of um, African people, um, you know, ways in which Mexico was annexed and brought into our country through a, a brutal and violent war, um, you know, the internment of Japanese Americans 
um, exclusionary act, you know, other exclusionary policies um, that Asian Americans face throughout throughout history. And so, in order for us to have a honest conversation about dismantling racism in the present, we have to have an honest conversation about how systemic racism was created in the past. One of the things that we talk about in our training is that systemic racism is first and foremost a system of advantage. And when we talk about racism, one of the things that we talk about most often is how systemic racism adversely affects people of color. But we don't talk about the other side of that coin, which is that the system is set up to, you know, provide advantages to white people. And that's one of the truths that, for whatever reason, it seems easier to acknowledge the pain and the oppression and the violence that systemic racism um, levies on the bodies of people of color, but for some reason it's much more challenging for us as a nation to address the fact that the entire system was set up to benefit um, a small minority of people, and that minority of people that was set up to benefit has grown and expanded over time. But, you know, people didn't mistreat other people just because they didn't like them or didn't understand them. Um, these systems were set up to create distinct advantages for some um, by, you know, creating out and out group to solidify power within a collective in group. And so, you know, the first thing we have to do about history is be honest um, and really analyze, you know, why racism was created in the first place um, and why for all intents and purposes, it really isn't an economically sustainable system. Um, it's not good for the advancement of our country um, to disenfranchise large populations of people. So, you know, something that, you know, didn't make sense, you know, hundreds of years ago, as our country has grown and as our country has become more diverse, um, it certainly doesn't make sense now. So we continue to perpetuate this vehicle, um, and quite frankly, it, it, it probably will be our undoing um, as, as more people of color, you know, immigrate into this nation and more people of color, you know, procreate in this nation and more uh, interracial couples, you know, you know, our country is going to continue to get more diverse. And so if, if we're going to grow in a way that... Um, builds up everybody, then we have to start addressing these conversations in a really serious way now. Something that you talk quite a bit about is the work that you do with your organization in schools. And so I was thinking, you know, if we think about racism as a, as a bug or as a virus, there are plenty of things that we expect educators and schools and teachers to sort of be on the front lines of when it comes to physical ailments with children. So, you know, I remember getting, you know, my, my, my vaccination record in my school or my teacher checking me for lice. Do you feel like when it comes to thinking about racism as a bug, it should be the same kind of thing where the, the front line for young people should be schools and teachers and school administrators at, at eradicating this the same way that we do with meningitis vaccines and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great comparison. I think about the fact that, you know, we talk about closing the achievement gap, and I don't particularly love the term achievement gap because I think the achievement gap is very much manufactured um, by generations of policies and lack of access to resources um, that, you know, exist in many of the communities where students of color are being educated. Um, but, you know, we talk about this notion that there are these failing schools, and what I would argue is that if you can look on a map and based upon somebody's zip code or based upon the area that they live, you can predict the type of education that young person is provided. It's not a matter of failing schools. It's a matter of schools doing exactly what they were set up to do. And so if we don't have a lens around racism as educators, as, you know, really the prim one of the primary lenses um, with which we consider as we educate our children, then we're destined to continue to replicate the results that we've had. Um, 
you know, you can look at a timeline throughout history and you can really see that educational systems have changed throughout time, but they've never particularly done a great job of educating people who are poor and never particularly done a great job of educating people of color in a way that doesn't diminish who they are in a way that's affirming, um, in a way that sets them up on an equal playing field to their white counterparts and their wealthy counterparts. And so, you know, I do think that this illness that is systemic racism, we see the impacts of that in um, urban schools, but we also see the impacts of that in independent and private schools. I'll talk about that separately, but, you know, many of the things that people pull their hair out about that are taking place in urban schools, um, if you really melt it down, it's a result of racial trauma that young people are enduring outside of schools and also the result of racial trauma that's been reified inside of schools um, for those young people. For some reason, the, solu- the solution that many schools are opting into in terms of trying to address the um, educational inequity is to place black and brown kids in the most restrictive, um, the most exclusionary environments possible. Um, and I just don't quite understand how that is an appropriate response to um, the, the cause or the source of why many times these young people are not able to achieve at the same rate as their peers in other communities uh, who have, you know, access to better resources, um, less, you know, their proximity to things like crime, um, their proximity to um, things like healthy food, um, you know, are very different for many of the kids who grew up in inner city environments and go to inner city schools. That actually is a good segue to something I, I really wanted to ask, which is, how have you seen in your work with schools and with overcoming racism, have, how have you seen the impacts of systemic racism playing out differently on the bodies of, like, children as opposed to adults? Like, how does it function? It, does it function differently um, for young people? I think, um, I, I think that when we don't provide young people with the tools to critically analyze and understand the systems of oppression that they navigate on a daily basis, um, you know, it can engender a lot of really unhealthy responses um, to, you know, to stimuli that really um, are very external of themselves. But, you know, oftentimes school environments promote a myth of meritocracy, this notion that if you just work hard and if you just show more grit, then um, that is the ingredient to overcome any systemic barrier that's in your way. But when you tell a kid who is on the receiving end of generational poverty, um, manufactured generational poverty through, you know, redlining policy, um, you know, through employment discrimination, you, you name it, um, the kid is on the receiving end of generational lack of access to quality education, that all they need to do is just work their way out of it. Um, that's a really unfair message to provide a child without providing any sort of historical or present-day um, context of sociopolitical awareness around the obstacles that they're navigating in a daily lived experience. And so I think for a young person, it's very easy to turn that um, pain that comes as a result of racial trauma inward on, upon themselves. And so I think that a lot of the responses that we see in schools around ways in which young people resist rules or expectations or, um, you know, teachers who may look different from them or teachers who come from different communities or areas, I think very much is a defense mechanism, a response to these triggers that they're experiencing both outside and inside of schools. And so the schools that we work with, um, teachers being able to, you know, provide these identity-safe spaces for young people 
you know, really allows young people to, you know, name their oppression and thus work against that. Um, you know, you can now take your anger out at a system versus taking the anger out on, upon yourselves. I think for adults, adults are in some ways, depending upon, you know, who they are and their experience, perhaps more aware of the systemic barriers that exist. But for whatever reason, you know, adults tend to hide the ball from kids, right? And so you'll have adults in schools who are working these insane hours, and then they'll wonder why, like, you know, it's like I've worked, I work incredibly hard, you know, for my students coming in early, leaving late, and then wondering why this kid, you know, perhaps isn't as engaged in their education um, as, you know, you might want them to be as an adult. And for me, many times the answer is it's like, well, you know a lot more than that young person knows in terms of the obstacles that they may face um, on their pathway, you know, to and through college or whatever alternative pathway to success they choose to take. Um, but as adults, we don't teach the young people about how to navigate those systemic barriers um, and in many ways just put more pressure on them to um, work through something, work through a system that places an unnormal and undue amount of pressure upon them um, than already the external factors that exist in their lives many times are placing on them in the first place. When you talk about triggers and navigating the world as a child, as opposed to an adult, that makes me think about the role that social media plays in the way that the ideas of racism spread. I wonder if you've seen anything um, with through your work in schools or just in general with children and how racism maybe spreads more quickly or just has more of an effect due to the way that people communicate um, online. I just think that in ways, you know, very different than when I was a young person, you know, I think about when I was a teacher and I always say, you know, I don't have any kids yet myself. I would say, man, being a parent in this generation has to be so much harder than, you know, even what it was to be a parent when I was growing up because our kids have access to everything at their fingertips unfiltered at all times, right? Um, and there isn't necessarily always a person who loves them or cares about them to filter what they're seeing and what they're experiencing um, through some sort of a lens or context. And so, you know, when I think about particularly the Black Lives Matter movement and the access that my young people have to seeing violence done upon black bodies um, without, <laughs> once again, in school, people explaining to them, um, you know, generations of police brutality um, and, you know, the relationship that law enforcement has played in, in the black community um, without explaining to them the connection to, of that violence um, to patterns of lynchings um, or, or violence that existed, you know, dating all the way back to the days of enslavement. To place those things into a context for young people, you know, it, it's, it's been one of the most challenging things that I, I feel like I had to navigate as a teacher, even before um, founding Overcoming Racism, was my students coming into school after, you know, uh, one of the prominent cases of police brutality took place um, and really asking me, you know, Mr. McKay, like, what, what's going on? Am I safe? Um, you know, how am I supposed to process this? Um, is this, you know, is this person going to be punished for what has happened here? You know, and so, you know, there are these reports and data that's coming out now that suggest that, you know, when black death goes viral, it can trigger PTSD-like trauma. And many of our kids, as a result of systemic racism, are already in environments where they have a closer proximity to trauma. And now social media has provided 
to our young people another means to continue to be re-traumatized um, without schools being really well equipped to explain to young people kind of what's going on. I was at a school um, in Houston not too long ago, and I was talking to some of the students there, and I was talking to them a little bit about, you know, myself, and I was telling them about how after Michael Brown's death, my students protested um, and, you know, the ways in which we organized that. And, you know, they looked at me and they're like, we, we didn't do anything, <laughs> you know, when Michael Brown was killed or when any of the people after that, you know, we didn't talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we haven't talked about the Black Lives Matter movement in school. And I think about just like how um, unfair that is to, to young people to uh, have them have such kind of close access to something that is, uh, you know, really emotionally triggering um, and without them to have very much of an outlet for adults to explain to them, you know, what's going on in the context that these things exist in. Mm. Well, it's just what you were saying, this idea of hiding the ball, right? You know, maybe as adults, we hope and think that these things don't impact our kids, that these things just fly over their head and they have no they have no meaning to them. They don't, they don't make a difference in their lives because they're so young. But, I mean, it seems very clear from the, from the studies and especially from your work that that's just not true. Yeah, you know, I think that there is this strange um, sentiment that systemic racism will just get better over time. You know, sometimes when I go and do trainings, people say things like, well, yeah, I understand, you know, in my generation um, how these realities played out. But, you know, my kids, they're colorblind. They don't see color. Um, and in reality, what we do by not giving young people um, the tools to have uh, kind of literacy around how race functions, then, you know, they're swept up by what they see in the media. They're swept up by what they see um, in other popular forms of entertainment. They're swept up by what they see and learn in schools. And so what we know already is that the media, popular forms of entertainment, educational environments are not the best environments um, to teach young people about what it means to live in a multicultural society. Um, because many times in all of these settings, we promote very stereotypical and false narratives about people of color. And so we leave our young people who are very impressionable and who do actually at a very young age have the ability to, to absorb very positive messages around what it means to live in a multiracial society. Because as adults, we're afraid to have these conversations. It's just like great taboo. Um, we leave our young people to be educated in a society that continues to socialize, um, you know, our young white people to um, imagine themselves in a way that is superior and our young students of color to imagine themselves in a way that is inferior. Um, and that's just a really, a really kind of misguided initiative. And so racism then becomes permanent because we refuse to address it, you know, with our young people. People ask me, well, when is the earliest, you know, that I should, you know, start talking to my kids about race? You know, mostly I would say white participants in my workshops. Um, and, you know, for me, I remember when I was in preschool, uh, a young white girl, you know, telling me that I couldn't play in the sandbox because I was black. And I remember looking at my skin and being like, no, I'm not black, I'm brown. <laughs> you know, she's like, no, you're black, right? And going home and talking to my mom and being like, a kid called me black today at school, right? And and I don't think my mom was necessarily like, oh, I'm going to be ready to have the talk today. But for young students of color, for young people of color, there is no age where you are protected, um, 
you know, from the realities of systemic racism. And so I think for white parents, they have to be willing to and ready to have these conversations with their um, kids at an extremely early age, you know, whenever they're ready to learn anything else, you, you can start teaching them positive and affirming messages about what it means to live out an anti-racist lifestyle and to um, accept people for their differences and to value people's differences rather than to encourage kids not to see them, which is quite frankly the worst thing that we can do. We really tout um, representation in media as something that can be sort of an antithesis or opposition to these false narratives, as you call them, that we create through real life, you know, real life things like through the news. Um, do you think that that's do you think that that's really effective? Um, do you think that it really helps for children to see black people who are succeeding and doing well and thriving on television and in film and film? Um, as something that can really counteract these messages and images that we're getting in news media? I mean, I think that there is no one thing that is a cure-all for systemic racism. The reason why, you know, racism is systemic is because it impacts people of color and white people across, um, you know, all of these different sectors, you know, education, healthcare, media, you know, employment, you name it. So there isn't one kind of cure-all, but I will say that, you know, representation certainly matters. Um, you know, your ability to see yourself as successful, your ability to see yourself um, as somebody who looks like whatever it is you want to be when you grow up, I think has a, a, a direct impact on, you know, the pursuits and the strivings of our young people. There's a reason why many of our young people look up to athletes and entertainers. Um, and if you ask, you know, any kid, you know, across many racial dynamics, but you ask kids, like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, okay, I want to, you know, play this sport. I want to, you know, do this. I want to be a singer. I want to um, be a rapper, whatever the case may be, because those are the avenues that they see themselves being successful. And so, you know, if you open up the definition of success a little bit and show people, show our young people about all of the people of color across multiple sectors, um, you know, what they've been able to do, particularly within the context of overcoming systemic barriers, you know, I do think that that makes a dramatic difference. Um, but as I mentioned before, you know, that has to reify that, you know, you know, I think if you look at how people are socialized, you know, you take a, a young kid who, you know, receives some messages from their parents about who they are. Um, that kid then goes out, grows up and goes out into the world. And, you know, that kid say goes to church and all the stained glass windows have people who are white. The kid then goes to school, and they read books, and none of the characters in the books or none of the books are written by people who look like them. The kid goes home and turns on the TV, and all of the superheroes or all of the people who show up on screen don't look like them. And then conversely to that, you know, the people who do show up, you know, in the books or the movies or the screens, you know, the motifs are all about darkness or this or that, or the villains, um, you know, look like them. And so that does something to the psyche of students of color. But on the flip side, for white students, <laughs> you know, being able to read a book like Harry Potter and if the, na the race of the character isn't mentioned, to assume that that character looks like you, to be able to turn on the television and to see heroes that look like you and to see programming that is diverse, that represents people that look like you, um, it has a dramatic impact on developing, you know, kind of internalized um, messages of superiority. Um, and so, you know... That's definitely something that is going to have to be addressed. I think mean, you can look at, you know, Black Panther. We took um, 280 students 
to go see Black Panther. And, you know, one of the most profound things, I've actually taken students to see movies before just as a, you know, teacher. We've gone and saw Great Debaters and um, Selma and everything like that. But going to, you know, Overcoming Racism, seeing those kids to see Black Panther, sitting in that movie theater and listening to kids cheer and laugh and get so excited at what they're seeing on screen and then listening to kids after they left the movie theater talking about what it felt like to see a black superhero. Um, it's, it, it is both inspiring, but frustrating to know that, you know, I think we're taking like 12 and 13 year olds that those kids lived their entire life and had never seen anything like that before. Um, and you know, who knows how long it'll be until they see that again. And so, you know, I definitely think representation matters and, um, you know, we have to address that, but it, it isn't a cure-all. I think you're right. I mean, I, I went to see Black Panther with a big group of kids. And, you know, when I went, I was sort of thinking, oh, this is the big movie. If we don't go see it, you know, like it was, it was at the time it felt like as black folks, we it was a movie we had to support and like we're really expected right. to. And so I went into the theater a bit sort of, oh, here we go. I got to go see this movie. But then watching kids leave the theater and talk about, you know, um, like, like a little black girl was like, oh, I want to work with computers because the, the, the character who right. does all the technology technology stuff is a, is a girl like me. You know, it's sort of it's easy for me to roll my eyes at conversations about representation as if they are a, a catch-all. But then when you actually see how they, important they are to, to young folks especially, it's kind of hard to deny. So I can sort of understand feeling both that they are important, but that they are not the end-all, be-all of what we need to make a meaningful impact in the lives of young Black children. I think self-esteem helps young Black children to resist the negative messages and negative stimuli that they are advertised about themselves on a daily basis. Racial pride also helps. You know, um, Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade talks about how your culture is your medicine, right? And how, you know, really one of the things that is, one of the most significant thefts of, you know, the enslavement of African people was the theft of culture. Um, and, you know, there are ways in which, you know, obviously we've created our own culture through struggle and through sacrifice. But to be disconnected from your culture is something that has this dramatic impact. And so, you know, representation builds self-esteem. It builds racial pride, um, which I think builds students' armor to navigate, you know, the oppressive systems that they have to navigate, you know, throughout their lives. However, you know, as adults, we still have to focus on dismantling those oppressive systems. And so I think, you know, the representation piece does really matter. But as long, you know, one of the things that we talk about overcoming racism is, like, we shouldn't just be teaching young people of color to know how to run better um, in a world that places up dramatic obstacles in front of them to know how to, you know, jump over this hurdle or how to dodge this hurdle. Um, we should be removing those systemic barriers. W.B. Du Bois once said that education is anywhere and everywhere political, and the pol- political goal of education for people of oppressed groups must be aimed at finding a means to um, end their oppression. Um, and I just think that, like, that quote really sums up what the goal of education should be for our young people if it isn't meant to liberate them from the systems that place them on an unequal footing, then what exactly is it meant to do? Um, Because if you're just trying to set up young people to better navigate systemic oppression, 
then there are some of them who will be able to do that and others who, by definition and by design, will not. And so we're basically agreeing to leave some of our young people behind because, you know, the system has done exactly what it intended to do in the first place. Yeah, and sort of going off of that, I think that that's where you see this narrative of Black folks have to be twice as good to go half as far, right? This idea that in order to just make it, you need to be, you know, so much better and know how to run so much faster and jump so much farther to make it over these hurdles. And, you know, it's if you're the kind of person who can do that, great. But not everybody right. can. And more importantly, that should not be the system that we're setting up. Right. No, yeah, and I think, you know, there are all these messages that we've created as a culture and a community to help us to explain to our young people, you know, how to stay safe in a culture, in a system that is inherently violent towards them, right? We teach um, our young people how to stay alive in encounters with the police rather than teaching law enforcement officers how not to kill our young people who are unarmed and and bright and full of potential. Um, We teach our young people how to run faster and jump higher um, over the hurdles where systemic racism um, places in their way. But we don't necessarily always, um, as a collective group of adults of all races, think about how can we create a level playing field for all kids. And so we do one activity in our workshop. It's a level playing field activity. Um, you know, we realist, you people have seen it probably online, but you realist the statements and, you know, people privileged end up in the front and people who have marginalized um, ideas end up in the back. And at the end of the activity, we have folks run to this line of success. And so obviously the metaphor, you know, people who are in the front are kind of right there. People in the back are really, you know, busting their tail to get there. And one of the things that I talk about after that activity, once we kind of talked about it and debriefed it, is that, well, there's a few things. Number one, for the people in the back, you know, because of proximity, you're not even really running against the people in the front. The people in the front have already pretty much, you know, been placed very close to the finish line. And so because of that, right, many times we're placed in positions where we feel like we're running against one another. And so we see things, we see things like internalized oppression playing out in our community as we're all trying to run this collective race to, you know, reach this kind of artificial line of success. But the other thing is, is that sometimes these are adults with the activity. You see people who are way in the back, right? And I tell them to run to the line of success and they just freeze or they walk because, you know, the activity in many ways is kind of silly. And I always ask the participants, what do we say about kids who see very critically and very intelligently just how unfair the situation that they've been placed in is, and they choose not to play the game, right? They choose not to, like, run this rat race um, in this race that they were intended to fail. Um, And we say all kind of negative things about those young people. And then what do we say to the young people who have been running this, this race and running it perfectly, but time that they're 16 or 17 or 20 or 21, they're exhausted, right, before they even had a chance to really live their lives. And so, you know, we tell our kids you have to be twice as good, and in many ways that is true, and there are actually a lot of studies that would, that would suggest that that is true. But it makes me think of the story of John Henry, and, you know, in the story of John Henry, John Henry, this African-American man, you know, early 1900s, he, his entire identity, you know, is wrapped up in this notion that he could lay down railroad tracks faster than any other person. And so, well, what does the railroad company do? They create a machine. They create a machine that can lay down railroad tracks faster than any man. And so, John Henry tells the railroad company, "There is, there is no way 
that this machine can beat me. And so he races the machine, and he wins. But he dies at the end of the story. And in many ways, I think that is the story of being black in America. We constantly teach our young people to race against this machine, to be just that much smarter, to be just that much stronger, to run just that much faster, to work just that much harder. But then when we see the mental health issues that exist in our community, when we see some of the violence that exists in our community, when we see the lack of you know, educational um, attainment that exists in some pockets of our community, um, what we realize is that there are people who are running this race that are burning out. And in reality, if you know, white people care about you know, people of color, if they care about themselves in this work, then they would, instead of asking um, you know, people of color to run faster or to be better, they would you know, ask, why are they running this race in the first place? And, you know, these are the questions that we try to get at in our session, um, because if we're not actively working against systemic racism, whether you're a white person or a person of color, then you're complicit in it. And our complicity has adverse impacts on our children. I can understand as an adult the ways in which I've had to navigate systemic racism in my life, and I can understand as an adult when I choose to say, well, I don't necessarily feel like fighting this battle for me right now. But when I step foot in that classroom and I look into the eyes of a kid, who has every ounce of potential in this world to do whatever it is that they want to do. But I know that that kid's 100% isn't going to um, get, yield the same results as a kid who grows up a few neighborhoods over um, as their 100% is going to yield. That really encouraged me to, to step out and say something has to be done about this, and I can't rest until, um, you know, I feel like I've made some sort of a dent in um, – the lack of access that our kids are handed um, in the beginning, and I can't just tell them to work, work th- to outwork everybody else. Um, I have to have something better for them, um, and so you know that's kind of the challenge of this work. What would you say to someone who says we live in a post-racial society? You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, that question is really simple, but really hard to answer <laughs> because. Is you know, racism to me is so real um, that it's, you know, it's almost like someone walking up to you and saying, the sky is, is red, you know? <laughs> what do you say? Like, well, no, actually, you know, look, the sky is blue. I don't know if there's something you need to adjust your eyes. But, I mean, it, you know, there, there is literally every study that you can imagine across every, you know, um, every sector of influence in this country that, that points to um, the existence of systemic racism, not just in the past, but very much alive in today and the present. And I think what I would, to someone who said that America is a post-racial society, I'll probably start by asking them some questions, right? And so, you know, I would ask them some questions about, you know, where they grew up, where they live, what type of schools they went to, um, what type of exposure do they have to people who are different from them? And then from get, garnering some of these answers, oftentimes people who would say something like that have grown up in environments where they've had le- very little proximity to people of color. Maybe they've only learned about people of color on the news or in the media. And so I'll ask them, why do you think your neighborhood that you grew up in looked like that? Why do you think the school that you went to in your neighborhood that you grew up in looked like that? Let's try to understand, you know, and, and, and kind of unpack that. And I think that when, you, when people start to actually look at their lived experiences, it's very easy to point out points of privilege. Um, and so, you know, 
for a short answer. I think in our workshop, the way that we navigate that is we just put up a ton of data. And so, you know, pretty much every myth that exists around, um, you know, why people of color are, you know, achieving um, at a lesser rate than their white counterparts, um, every myth is disproven in, in, in data. If you look at the wealth gap in this country, there's a phenomenal piece called the asset value of whiteness. You know, people say, well, the reason why black families, uh, it's not racism, right? It's, it's, you know, there's just too many homes without black fathers in the home. And if, if, if black people would just invest in the institution of marriage, and if black fathers would stay in the home, then there would be no, no gap. But if you look at the gaps in wealth, black two-parent households have about half the net wealth as white single-parent households. You say, well, no, it's not systemic racism, it's education. If people in the black community would just double down and focus on their education, then, you know, that would... Um, that, you know, that would close these gaps. It's not systemic racism. It's, it's, it's a cultural thing. They just they don't care about their education. And if you if you look at the data around wealth, you know, black um, families who've graduated from college have significantly less net wealth than white families who have some or no college. Well, it's because they're lazy. They just don't want to. They don't want to work. You know. But then you look at the data and you find out that black families with full time work have less net wealth than white families with part time work. And so, you know, these are all statistics and studies that are very readily available to people. And so, you know, I think if someone is to say that society is post-racial, um, that argument is just so thin that, you know, by asking them a few questions, um, usually you can poke some, some, pretty, some pretty clear holes in it. So I want to sort of switch gears. Um, you probably remember the kind of deadly rally in Charlottesville um, like back in August. After that rally happened, Barack Obama actually had the most liked tweet on Twitter ever. He tweeted a picture of, 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 mix, of children of all races, and he said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. And so clearly this was a message that struck a chord during a time where folks were looking for meaning and answers. But I'm curious, if we're thinking about racism as a virus, do you think that's true? Do you think that babies are born with the with the inclination toward racism in them already as soon as they're out the womb? Or is it something that is learned, or is it, is it not that simple? Do you think it's a mix of, of, of the two? No, I think babies are definitely born into society without, you know, much consciousness of these issues. Um, but I think that they're, they're born into a society that already has habits and traditions and a history. And so very early, at a very early age, young people start to receive messages about what it means to exist in the many identities that they hold. You know, I will say, in terms of gender, right, even before children are born, <laughs> we start to have messages about, like, what, how their gender expression should be. People, you know, well, if you know whether your baby is born with male genitalia or female genitalia, right, people will buy them different things without really, you know, knowing how, they will, how their gender will actually be expressed as they grow, grow older. So I will say in terms of gender, that process of socialization does happen really even before birth. But in terms of race, you know, we're, we're taught very early um, about, you know, w- what role it is that we're supposed to play, out, play in society. And we're taught first by people that we love, by our parents, by our teachers. Um, and then we go out of society and those messages are reinforced by institutions, right? And we talked about that a little bit earlier, the media, um, what you see when you go to school, what you see when you go to your religious organization, um, what you see when you just navigate space. Dr. Joy DeGruy uh, wrote a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, 
And she talks in her talk about, you know, like, imagine a black kid in a bank, like a little kid, maybe five, or some important place. And so she asks her audience, you know, when she's speaking to the audience, she asks them, you know, what are the rules? You know, she asks black people, what are the rules that you tell your kids before you go on a bank? And it's kind of a funny moment because there are some, in some ways, these universal rules, right? It's like, you know, don't say anything, stay close to me, and um, don't touch anything, right? Like, you know, don't embarrass me in this bank. This is, you know, this is, you know, we care a lot about how people perceive us in public as a result of people judging our entire race, on the, you know, based upon the actions of some. You just gave me so a flashback goes, to you know, my childhood. You just right, gave, that was yeah. like a real, yeah, like, right. mother, without, I kind of forgot. Without, yeah, like, without even knowing. Yeah, I, I and you said that, and I, I had completely blacked this out of my, of my adult life, but that before we went into a store or a mall or especially a bank, we got a talking to that was, don't touch anything, don't ask for anything, don't mm-hmm. embarrass me, don't run around, you know. And I think I did not even realize until this moment that that, where that comes from. And the interesting, the interesting thing about that is, you know, because I oftentimes will invoke this in my trainings, right, to just see as I travel around the country, you know, there's this it's extremely universal, because I won't name them. I'll just ask people. I'll say, well, what are, what are the three things? And they'll come out. So you imagine this little black kid in this bank, right? And this is obviously a metaphorical situation, but they see a white kid in the bank, right? And just in this example, the white kid is making noise. The white kid is moving around. The white kid is touching things. Subconsciously, that's doing something really distinct for this kid. First, this white kid is breaking all of the rules, right? Like, these are the rules. You told me that these are the rules. So I would imagine these rules apply to everybody. This kid is breaking all the rules. And I'm noticing that none of the adults in this setting are reacting to that. This kid is breaking the rules, but it doesn't, you know, for me, the world would be ending right now. But for this kid, the world isn't ending, right? And so this kid starts to better understand the set of rules that he lives by and the set of freedoms that this other kid lives by. You know, that in and of itself isn't necessarily the biggest deal, right? But then, as I mentioned earlier, when that message is being reinforced, by the institutions that this kid grows up and goes to, that's how we start to shape our racial identity. Or for young boys, um, ways in which we start to shape notions of toxic masculinity at a very early age. Um, your pet dies and your father tells you, you know, boys don't cry, or you fall and you scrape your knee. You know, what your, your parent is trying to say is, you know, hey, you can make it through this. You know, this isn't the end of the world. But we start to drill in these messages that says, you don't have the same ranges of emotion that women have, right? Anger is an emotion that's socially acceptable to you. But fear or um, anxiety or sadness, these are not socially acceptable emotions. When you feel those emotions, hide those emotions, suppress those emotions. And so I don't think that we are born um, with these notions, but I think that we've gotten extremely good at um, training our young people. First, in those messages that people mean no harm. I'll do, I'll do one more. You know, if you think about uh, a young a young white child, right? And so this, you're in a grocery store or some public setting, right? And the white child sees a person of color. Maybe it's the first time they've seen a person of color before. And they say, look, mommy, she's brown. What do you think is the first thing that that white parent says to the child? I think that you're she... You're going to guess. <laughs> I think that that white person would probably say to the child, like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't say that out loud. Like, they should... They should not say something like that in public because it embarrasses them. Yeah, like, you probably would, like, shush. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, shush, don't, don't say that. Or, yeah. you know, the person may apologize to the woman and say, I'm sorry. But what you've really just 
told this kid is that like what the kid did was made an observation, right? And you know, you probably should expose your children to more people of color. But beyond that, right, you know, that is a teachable moment for a young person. Not that race is this like secret or this taboo or this thing that you should never talk about. But instead, like, absolutely, there are people of all different colors and complexions, and that's one of the things that makes our, you know, country and our society great. And we're going to go <laughs> to this community or we're going to, you know, put you in this school or whatever the case may be so you can interact with all of these different people um, who come from all these different backgrounds. And so we've gotten very good at training at a very early age our young people to live out realities of what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to be heterosexual, what it means to be a person of color or a white person. Um, and then institutions do a very good job of reinforcing that. The, the thing that is most important in this, and this kind of comes from by the hero cycle of socialization, is that as we get older, we get rewards for staying in the lane that we're assigned. And you get punishments if you step outside of that, right? And so it's very hard once we've been socialized to question our socialization and to act outside of that socialization. Um, and so if, as a black person, I, you know, work hard and I bootstrap and I don't ever complain about systemic racism and I just, you know, grind my way through society, then, you know, people will say things like, wow, you're really a credit to your race. And you, you know, you really are, you know, you're proving, you know, this is possible. Um, but if I speak out about systemic injustice, if I, um, call out when somebody, you know, microaggresses me or when somebody's promoted unfairly or when I don't have the same access to somebody um, as a different race than me, you know, then there are punishments to that. There, I may lose friends. I may lose a job. Um, you know, there are consequences that come with that. I think the, very, the perfect example of this is Colin Kaepernick. Because if you look at the NFL, you know, there's all manner of criminals that exist or, or people who've committed crimes that exist in the NFL, right? People who beat their wives, people who, um, you know, committed sexual assault, people who killed people, you know, you name it, um, they're in the NFL. But Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed choosing to kneel and, to, uh, you know, to make a statement against white supremacy, that is not allowed in America. That is fundamentally against the rules, right? And so you no longer, you know, the punishment that has to come with that is you no longer can exist in this space. You can do all of these things that we expect of you, but if you step outside and you challenge this system, there, there are consequences to that. Um, and that's what keeps people in their lanes. If, as a man, I hear women, um, you know, talking about the Me Too movement or Time's Up or talking about ways in which men, um, you know, sexually harass or sexually assault or just in general um, perform, you know, toxic forms of masculinity in ways that hurt, that hurts women. When I'm among my group of men friends and I'm just saying like, oh man, that's all a bunch of nonsense and this and that, that, that all flies, right? But the minute I go into a group of men and there aren't women around and I say, man, you know, we really should start having conversations about toxic masculinity or, or man, you know, when we talk about women, you really shouldn't objectify them like that. You think you're going to get continue to get invited back to the football game every Sunday or whatever the case may be? Like, nah, this guy, he he's a little bit on the outside. We don't we don't want him to be a part of this. He makes us uncomfortable, and so it's really hard for us to break out of our socialization because you know we learn at an early age. We're rewarded if we operate within our socialization, and we're punished socially if we choose to operate outside of that. Yeah, it's it's almost like we're trying to sweep the dirty floor that is the history and the reality of racism, like trying to make it appear like 
that we're actually living in a clean house that's not <laughs> um, really right. when you get down to the bottom of it. But it also makes me think about how a lot of people are saying, oh, well, everybody's really vocal about racism right now and everybody's out and I like that. Or they may say that in terms of like comparing the North to the South, like the South is, well, at least people are out and proud about their racism and you know about it. But um, I'm wondering if that's not really true, like how we've had these periods of where people are more vocal about racism and other periods where people are more quiet about it. Um, is that is that like a misconception that people have about in terms of how people vocalize their their racism? I think so. I think that people of color um, have resisted systemic racism probably about at the same rate throughout history. You know, I, I don't have any data to, to prove this, but I think the people of color have resisted systemic racism in very similar ways throughout history. And that's actually true across, like, racial lines um, of, you know, different groupings of people of color in the United States. I think that what's happening right now is that because of social media um, and because of the 24-hour news cycle, you know, more white people have access to see people of color expressing their discontent about systemic racism, or they have more access to see people of color enduring these very public and humiliating forms of racism, whether it be what took place in the Waffle House in Alabama or what took place in Starbucks or the videos of police brutality that we see taking place all over the country. You know, it's not that these incidents just started happening more frequently. It's just that, you know, people have cell phones now and can film them. Um, and because they can film them, white people um, now have more access to being able to see them. And, and what we see today is, you know, many white people not knowing how to process that because it conflicts with their worldview of a America um, that is a meritocracy, that everybody has an equal access, um, and that, you know, a few personal behavior shifts um, would, you know, change, dramatically change outcomes for African Americans. Um, it's not that there's this, you know, system of racism that, you know, is systematically holding them back. But I think when you really dive deeply into that mindset, the only argument outside of really looking at the, all of the data and research that exists to prove systemic racism, to, to explain the condition of, you know, people of color, but particularly black folks and, and indigenous people in this nation, is to really assume that we're genetically inferior, you know? And so it's like either you, you can make that argument, which people have obviously tried to make unsuccessfully throughout time, or you have to like acknowledge the fact that a woman of color with a higher salary and a better education um, than a white woman receives completely different care. And that for that woman of color who makes a lot of money and is very well educated, their likelihood of walking into a doctor's office um, if you look at breast cancer um, or other, you know, or a number of other diseases, their likelihood of being diagnosed um, in a life or death case is dramatically less than the likelihood of a woman who has less resources and less education. How do you explain that, right? Like, how do you explain the recent study that came out um, that the New York Times publicized that talks about how black boys who grew up in the top 1% of black families are incarcerated at the same rate as white boys who are white men who make $36,000 a year. How do you explain the fact that when you control for fathers being in the home, when you control for um, home ownership, when you control for a person having um, a good uh, access to a, a good education, that black boys still fare dramatically worse than their white counterparts? If you don't look at, uh, you know, the lens of systemic racism. 
Um, you know, we've tried some really cosmetic, you know, like affirmative action in many ways is a very cosmetic policy. Um, and also affirmative action is a policy that dramatically benefits white people and white families as white women are, you know, one of the largest beneficiaries of affirmative action policies. But you really have to ask yourself, it's like, what is this really meant to achieve? Because if you, if you want to have a, a level playing field in America, you have to account for centuries of lack of access. You have to account for public policy decisions um, that invested in white communities, policy decisions like the creation of the Federal Housing Administration, um, initially um, labor unions, initially the Social Security Act, which when these things were initially um, written in, they, um, very much excluded people of color. The GI Bill. Um, you know, which allow people to purchase homes and, and go to college generationally. Like, we have to look at these policies that allowed for, particularly after the Great Depression, the white middle class to grow dramatically, but also white populations who have been historically shut out, the Irish, the Polish, the Germans, et cetera, to assimilate into whiteness that people of color did not have access to, right? This wealth gap that we have in our country is dramatic. And in America, as a result of capitalism, not having money, is <laughs> is directly tied to a, a number of adverse effects, right? And so when we look at the money that, you know, the, the gap in wealth between people of color and white people, it's not like that gap was just created because, you know, white people were more ambitious or smarter or had, or had more, um, you know, more talent. But you can literally point to the places throughout history where, you know, a white person's parent or grandparent was able to take advantage of a, a system that I wasn't, or my parents weren't, right? And so, you know, if we're going to really talk about overcoming that, then we have to create some policies that address past wrongs. And that is where, in America, it's kind of like a non-starter. Because we didn't get here by having, like, colorblind policies. We got here because many of the policies, um, either, you know, written into the law or through enforcement, systematically excluded people of color from avenues of developing wealth. But now we want to get out of this mess, through colorblind policies, um, and the reality is that's just not going to work. And so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, as people are raising their voices and as more people are paying attention to it, who's really willing to address this system? Um, you know, because when we look at what it means to address it, um, it means, you know, addressing past wrongs, and I think that that's a conversation that's very challenging for a lot of people. Yeah, I also would say... I think I think you're exactly right, but I would even say that those past wrongs. I mean, we are still so clearly feeling the impact. You know that if if, if my grandparents were not allowed to take to have access to the GI Bill because they were black, and someone else's grandparents were because they were white, well, that family, that white family, was able to, you know, uh, if they were if they they were able to go to college, use their house as collateral to pay for college. If my grandparents were shut out of that, that's like. We're talking about things that impacted my parents who are still living and are the reason why, like, my right. parents had to work two jobs to pay for college and other people's parents did not, right? And so, you know, to, to, I have a lot of friends who might say, oh, this was 100 years ago, that was 400 years ago, like, that was so long ago. But we're talking, we're, we're, it's not that long ago, right? The impacts are, are, you can feel them right now and see them right now, right? We have this fantasy where, all of this stuff happened hundreds of years ago. Slavery ended so long ago. All of that. And no, no, this is, this is you know, this is impacting, when you're in a college classroom, this is impacting who is and is not in that classroom today in 2018. Oh, absolutely. And, and quite frankly, what people refuse to acknowledge is that because we have not, um, 
because we have not directly addressed the past inequities, right, they've just continued and morphed into inequities that exist today. You know, you can look across the country, you know, redlining is not is no longer legally enforceable, but, you know, there are banks that are settling losses all over the nation um, for excluding people of color, having exclusionary lending practices for people of color who have the credit score and who have the down payment but still are not being rented homes in certain neighborhoods because of fear that they're going to reduce property values. Um, the National Community Reinvestment Coalition did a study that looked at cities all over America. Um, I was, I'm originally from St. Louis, and so from St. Louis, from 2012 to 2014, less than 1% of homes received loans in predominantly black neighborhoods. They show on this study and this map which areas are low-income areas and which areas are not. And what you see on the map is that low-income white areas, people are still having access to home loans. The low-income areas where people of color live, home loans are not being given. And many times there are not banks that are even in those communities for people to, you know, seek loans. And so, you know, what you see is that, you know, one of the things that people often say is like, well, no, this isn't a race issue, this is a class issue. But when you, you know, really boil down the data, um, that doesn't bear out truth. And so, you know, when we look at the incarceration rate in this country, when we look at the health care disparities, when we look at education disparities, considering the fact that we're more segregated now than we were 40 years ago, when we look at disparities in housing lending and then now the onset of gentrification, which is pushing people of color out of the inner city environments that they were relegated to for um, numbers of years, when we look across all of these different um, perspectives, what we see is that these policies that existed in the past have really been perfected. And that's why I said in my speech that racism is a superbug, right? Because it's much more invisible. Um, it's much more insidious. And in many ways, I think the battle of fighting against racism is much more challenging today. Yes, we have social media and we have a lot of different tools um, that our predecessors didn't have. But when racism is extremely overt and in your face, there are still a majority of white people in this country said, you know, in the 1960s that the, the movement by the Negroes was hurting um, their cause more than it was helping it, right? And so imagine a society where there are literally water fountains that say colored and white and bathrooms that say colored and white and lynchings that are taking place. Um, all of these things are happening and people and, you know, white people in the society were still like, eh, this isn't so bad, right? Imagine today where many of those very visible barriers have been removed. Um, people of color are now calling out for many of those same reforms, but it's falling, their cries are falling on deaf ears because it's even harder for white allies to see what the daily experience of a person of color is. And so what is our vehicle to show white people, now that there aren't the bathrooms that are segregated, now that there aren't these very visual reminders of, of systemic racism, what are the ways that we show white people that we endure racism on a daily basis? We parade our trauma to the world over and over and over again. And while maybe that brings some white people to the battlefield, um, it also continues to desensitize our society, um, you know, around the violence that black people are enduring on a daily basis. When I saw what happened um, to Ms. Clemens in the Waffle House, and I saw what happened to um, the two gentlemen in the Starbucks, my reaction to that is obviously rage, but it's also the, like that is not so different from what I see happening to black women um, or black girls in schools. You know, when the work that I'm doing in schools, and, you know, there are books written about how black girls are being pushed out of schools, how when black girls assert their opinion um, and their view to have an attitude, the ways in which they're, they're treated, um, suspensions, expulsions for black girls for the way that they wear their hair or the way they wear their clothes. 
And similarly to the, the gentleman in Starbucks, you know, seeing in schools black boys who are being who are being arrested in school for minor behavior infractions. Um, you know, we have this conversation and we say, oh, my gosh, like, how could these things happen? But in reality, many of these things are very normal um, realities of, of black life. Um, and I'm just not necessarily convinced that um, continuing to show our trauma will convince um, white people in this nation to see it. You know, I think that there is going to have to be some some real soul searching um, for all of us to look at the ways in which you know, to dehumanize a group of people, you know, is dehumanizing to, to all of us. And so one of the things that we talk about in my training is that, like, if you, you know, Leela Watson, indigenous activist, says, if you come to help me, then leave. But if you've come because you believe your liberation is bound with mine, then let us walk together. And so we want to cultivate white, white allies that fight against systemic racism, not because they feel bad for me, but they fight against systemic racism because it dehumanizes them. I think as a man, it's much easier for me to understand. You know, I can say, oh, well, I have a mom and I have a, a sister, and I have this and that, and I just I just feel so bad about sexism. But I should also be able to look and realize the ways in which the toxic messages that I received about masculinity growing up are harmful to me, and that I don't want to pass those same messages down to if I were to have a son or to the young men that look up to me. Um, and so I need to dismantle systemic sexism because there's all there's a wide array of consequences that come for me, you know, in association with that the relationships that I'm able to have with other men, you know, and the ways in which I'm society wants me to perform those relationships, right? Like I'm not supposed to tell you that I love you. I'm not, I can give you a hug with my arm in, in the middle and I can pound you in the back, but I can't open my arms and embrace you. Right. And so, you know, there are these limited, these very limited definitions of masculinity that men feel that they have to perform. And that is not only damaging to them, but clearly um, damaging to the women that we, we interact with. And so if we care anything about ourselves as a species, in the ways in which we hurt other people, in the ways in which we hurt ourselves, then we will work to dismantle sexism for us and not out of, you know, some sort of paternalism to say that we need to, you know, save women. Um, we need to save ourselves. And I think that white people have to have that same, um, that same kind of motivation. If you're seeing, you know, Angela Davis is an unbroken line of police brutality dating all the way back to the day of slavery. If you're a white person and you're seeing the ways in which people of color uh, are forced into situations where they have very close proximity to violence, and you understand how the system of racism has set that up to be so, and you receive benefits as a result of this system and privileges that the system conveys to you. That's not a, a zero-sum game. You know, those benefits don't just come for free, right? And so, um, you know, to dehumanize somebody else, to dehumanize yourself. And, you know, I think once people start to look at the cost of systemic racism, um, obviously the cost for people of color are very visible and clear, but the cost for white people, and w when they realize we're not asking for white people to relinquish their privilege, but re rather to dismantle the systems that ensure that their privilege is predicated upon the oppression of others, then I think we'll recognize that our society will do better collectively if we, if we you know, move forward as it pertains to this issue. The last thing I'll say about that um, is, you know, the, the greatest indicator of a society's wealth, one of the greatest indicators of society's wealth and success is how well um, they treat their women and how, how much enfranchisement their women have in this society, you know, because it doesn't make sense to disenfranchise half or some, oftentimes more than half of your society. And so, you know, what we, what we see is that the way that you treat your marginalized communities directly um, correlates to, you know, the success and the, the output of your businesses, your schools, um, your country as a whole. And so, yeah, capitalism and, you know, democracy and all the things, the ways in which we've conceived those in America 
have worked very well for um, a population of people. But imagine how much you know better our nation would be um, if we didn't spend so much time shutting people out from you know what is supposed to be a free market and supposed to be open competition. But in reality, that's just not how it functions. Yeah, going back to your point earlier about how you were saying we parade our trauma, um, even when we do parade our trauma, it's kind of like people can still, white people specifically, can still go back and say, well, you had it so much worse before and you can get over it and we deal with this too. We're poor. Look at us. You know, we're dealing with the same right. problems. Um, but I feel like, so I also feel like we've we've been drowned in it so much that we can't we kind of can't see the shore. Like people have become complacent and seeing that there's a better place that we can get to. And people are so used to seeing that black trauma that they're kind of like they they don't take it seriously. They take it for granted. Yeah, um, um, I'm trying to I'm blanking on the name of the scholar, um, but it'll come to me. But you know, there's a scholar who said. Elizabeth Alexander um, said that, you know, black bodies in pain have been an American national spectacle for centuries, right? And so I think this kind of goes back to your question about, um, you know, whether or not our resistance has gotten, you know, louder or we had more people resisting throughout time. Like, you know, we've, the ways in which definitions of race play out today are not just predicated on the ways in which we're personally socialized. Um, you know, if I were to have a physical wound um, and I were to have a kid, I wouldn't pass that physical wound, you know, like a flesh wound down to my child. But we definitely pass down trauma and emotional wounds um, to our children. And so, you know, people of color are holding this collective pain that is in this, this collective experience of seeing ourselves dehumanized, seeing violence done upon our bodies, seeing um, systems reject us throughout per- perpetuity. Um, and we hold that pain, and, you know, we've, as a people, developed a number of defense mechanisms to cope with that. But then on the other side of that, white people have seen this performance of black pain throughout history as well um, and have been extremely desensitized to it. And I used to ask myself as a kid when I would read books about, you know, I was, I've, I've always been this way. <laughs> so I would read books about, you know, enslavement. I read books about, you know, the civil rights movement and lynching. And I would wonder, I remember reading about Megger Evers. And, you know, I can't remember exactly what writing this was, but he talked about um, a period of time where every day when he drove to and from work before, you know, obviously before he was assassinated, um, he would have to drive by this tree where a black man's body was hanging. And I thought about, like, what would it be like to have that be a reality in your daily life? Mm. Not just for black citizens, where obviously that terrorism was meant to dissuade them from, I don't know, registering to vote or from living a full definition of freedom in their lived experience. But for a white person, what do you have to believe about black people to drive by that same human body hanging from a tree and not question or not act on what, what sickness exists in us to allow this to happen? And I think, you know, sometime after the one millionth um, police video that I saw of, you know, a person of color or a child, uh, you know, a, a you know, man, woman, or child, trans person, et cetera, being executed by law enforcement officers, it kind of dawned on me. And I was like, oh, this is what that is like. You know, I remember when Alton Sterling, I'm, I live in Louisiana, I remember when Alton Sterling was killed. Um, I remember seeing the video of Alton Sterling. And then, 
you know, turning over to going to sleep and then hearing another ping on my phone and looking, opening my phone, and then immediately thereafter on my timeline came the video of Philando Castile. And I remember laying in my bed, enraged, um, sad, and thinking, like, is this what it means to be a black person in America, you know, in present day, that you can, you know, watch a modern-day lynching and then have to turn over or go to sleep, wake up and go to work the next morning um, as if nothing has happened or nothing is wrong. And so, you know, I think that the more things change, the more things stay the same. And we're desensitized to the pain of black people and people of color, um, and particularly indigenous people, we're desensitized to this pain because we see this pain not only on the news, not only on social media, but we watch it as entertainment. You know, you can look at many of the programs that exist on TV today. Many of the black characters are going through, you know, extremely traumatic and adverse situations. Um, if they're not, you know, being portrayed on screens, comedic relief or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, we've gotten used to it. And um, as a society, that it, that's a, a very dangerous thing because, you know, that's how, uh, you know, Ayanna Jones in Michigan, you know, a seven-year-old girl can be laying in her bed and be killed during a no-knock raid by law enforcement officers and the nation not collectively pause, um, you know, and say there's a problem. That's how Flint can be without clean water for years and years and years, and we continue to move on with our lives as if, you know, nothing has happened. That's how a woman can be assaulted and dragged throughout a, a Waffle House, um, you know, over, and, and people still go online and defend the, silver, the, the plastic cutlery over the woman's dignity because, you know, we've, we've allowed for, you know, the lives of people of color, particularly black and, black and brown people, um, to be reduced to something that is less than human. And, you know, that is that is something that um, has been a constant um, in our experience in America. Yeah, that takes me back to something that you said in your talk at, during the solution sessions. You know, if we all, like, unless you're out of your mind, you pretty much agree lynchings are bad. Unless you are a monster, right. you pretty much agree slavery was bad. Like, people, no, like, reasonable people, the jury is not still out on these these concepts with most reasonable people. But... We don't behave in ways as a society that demonstrate that we actually care about eradicating racism, right? Like, we sort of have to—we're sort of pretending that we care. We go through the motions of caring. You know, racism is bad. Slavery is bad. Lynchings are bad. But we haven't really all agreed that racism is bad in the ways that we kind of pretend that we have. And so in a lot of ways, we're sort of going through this fake reality where, yeah, everyone agrees racism is bad— but then why do you have Flint still not having clean water and we just sort of forgot about it? Why do you have people going online and defending, you know, Waffle House over a bag of cutlery over an actual black woman's life who had her dress pulled down in public by a police officer, right? If we truly, right. truly were invested in meaningfully engaging in eradicating racism, you wouldn't have these things. But yet we do. It's like we have these two versions of, of the world one in which we're pretending we live in, where we care about racism and we want to get rid of it and it's awful and it's so bad, and the real world where these awful things happen and we just sort of go on with our lives. And they often don't touch each other, those two worlds. Yeah. I do race and equity trainings, and, you know, so people know me for that. And, you know, people will come up to me and they'll strike up a conversation. Um, 
you know, as if, you know, when I'm not doing that work, that, I, you know, I, I do have a life outside of anti-racism conversations, but people will come up to me at social gatherings, at in public, whatever, and they'll, you know, strike a conversation. And what they really want to tell me at the end of the conversation is I'm not racist, right? That's kind of the, either they will come out and say that, or the underlying thing is they want me as the anti-racism guy to, I don't know, give them a safety pin or a stamp of approval or a sticker or a high five and say, like, you got it. And what I've, what I've really tweaked for people and the way that I respond to that when people say I'm not racist, you know, someone being quote unquote, you know, you can argue whether or not that's possible, but for the, for the result of the, for the, you know, send this podcast, we'll, you know, say, um, for someone who says, you know, I'm not racist, that doesn't really, if that is possible, that doesn't do anything to change the lived experience that people of color are living on a daily basis. Um, and it doesn't do anything to change the fact that the system of racism pro- provides advantages. Um, to the people who are oftentimes saying, I'm not racist. And so what I ask people is, are you intentionally anti-racist? And when you ask somebody that, it's kind of a funny moment because, you know, the look on people's faces, like, really changes. Because I think a lot of people who truly, we've somehow connected. So being racist means you are bad, right? And so, you know, you can call a white person almost any name in the book, and, you know, obviously it's mean to call somebody names, but if you call a white person racist, that's like the worst thing you can call them, right? Like, that is the, the easiest way to get a white person defensive is to call them racist. And I, and I can understand why that would be something that doesn't feel good to be called that. And so we've, we've made the threshold of racism so high that, in, that if you're not carrying a tiki torch in Charlottesville, and the president actually came out and raised the threshold even higher than that because he says that there are some fine people out there who are carrying tiki torches. We've raised the threshold to be racist so high that no one qualifies, right? And so what we really have to analyze in our society is that being racist is, quite frankly, a, a normal outcome of the socialization that people receive in our society. As a man, I was socialized in a sexist society. If I want to fight against sexism, I need to acknowledge that and maybe through that I will be disgusted enough with this label that I will work to dismantle the dangerous messages about um, masculinity that I was provided um, growing up. And so conversely, in terms of racism, to live an anti-racist lifestyle is not easy, right? It not only means that you have to show up to a Black Lives Matter protest, that you have to vote for the politician that speaks, um, that has a platform on a race, that you have to call your representatives to make sure that the policies that are being passed um, are equitable. It is, it's not all of that, but also the ways in which we exist in space, it means to not be complicit with systems of dominance, right? And so when you go to the all-white country club or the, all, the restaurant where all the patrons are white but all the servers are people of color, it, it means to change our behavior, the way that we spend our money, the way that we, um, the schools that our children go to, the neighborhoods that we live in, right? And I think when you get down to what are the individual and collective behaviors, that people have to opt into to actually be anti-racist, I think a lot of people at that point say, oh, actually, I'm kind of good. <laughs> I'm actually kind of comfortable um, with, what, with, with the way things are right now. You know, it, it was I just saw in New York, they are trying to, there's a, a school district in New York, which is trying to deal with the fact that their school district is completely segregated. And so there was a policy um, that they were trying to pass that would allow students who were um, coming from low-income communities, primarily black, but also students who were coming with academic struggles to be bused into 
the school to have some slots in the school that was had the best resources where students were performing the best. Um, they were predominantly white, and they had video of these parent uh, meetings where these white parents are rallying against this, right? Where they're saying this is oppressing my child, right? My child might have to go to another school where there's a dramatic amount of privilege, um, because you're saving spots for these kids, right? But at the root of that, the policy is about desegregation. I guarantee you those parents, if you ask them, they would say, I'm not racist. I'm a good person, right? But when it comes down to sacrificing the lived experience of your child, who has the benefit of whiteness in this country, versus the lived experience of a child of color who does not have the benefit of whiteness in this country, then that's where the rubber meets the road. And so how many people are willing to actually make those sacrifices? And the reality is very few. And so this is why racism, as um, Derek Bell says, is permanent, you know, until proven otherwise, because, you know, people are very comfortable with this notion of being not racist because the threshold in this country of being racist is so high that no one really fits the description, um, you know, once we, once we boil it down. If you're not, like, wearing a white hood um, and burning a cross, then you're not racist, right? And so everyone can exist in that level of comfort and believe they're a good person. But the question we should be asking is, are you actively anti-racist? And I think that goes to white people, people of color. Um, when you talk about sexism, it goes to men. You talk about gender, people who are cisgender, right? We have to, we have to ask ourselves, like, are we working to dismantle these systems or are we complicit? And if we're complicit, eh? well, you can be the judge of if that is racist or not. But I know one thing, it doesn't, do anything to change the lived experience of me or the young people in this country who are enduring um, the you know generational impacts of a system that they had no um, role in authoring. Well, I think when people are confronted with that and then they respond with the I'm not racist, it's kind of like the ego stepping in as the superhero with the cape. And um, I think right. that it can be like a huge hurdle for people to not only, well, first shift their mindset and then second shift the actions that uh, precipitate as a result of that mindset. It's just a huge leap for some people. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I do in my trainings, you know, people will say, you know, I've had um, white participants in my training say, you know, I was really nervous about coming to this because I was afraid that I was going to leave feeling like I'm the worst person in the world. Or I was afraid that my friends or my peers of color that I work with um, we're all going to look at me, and 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 I guess <laughs> I guess they're going to discover for the first time that that I was white, right? You know, like <laughs> as if they haven't kind of seen you navigate these spaces in your white skin. And what they, what they say is that they leave actually feeling very empowered, and in many ways they're healed because you know one of the things that we talk about in the workshop is that like we're all socialized in the same society. We all receive the same messages about who is the most desirable, who is the least desirable, who is deserving of safety and justice and liberty and prosperity and who's not deserving of those things. Um, you know, and so, you know, one of the things about the training is like we need to demystify this notion that having racist tendencies or beliefs disqualifies you from being a good person, right? Because at the end of the day, if you have grown up and been acculturated in America, if you've gone through our school system, which does not do a good job of educating people around the dynamics of race, if you watch our television, if you watch our movies, if you go on our social media channels, um, to be to somehow be able to leave that without having developed any sort of race as a white person racist beliefs or prejudicial beliefs, um, 
would be fascinating. I would love to study somebody who was able to do that. And so when we understand racism as a more normalized trait, um, you know, as in America, then we can actually address it. But that's not what we do. We do the opposite of that. We place, um, you know, racism as being this, you know, unattainable thing. And so, you know, people never have to, to address themselves. Or people say things like this in my workshop. Well, my parents, you know, um, are good people, you know, and, and they, you know, raised me the best way they could. But, you know, my, my dad would make really racist jokes in the household. And so it's like, I'm not trying to <laughs> tell you that your dad, who you love and who I'm sure is, you know, in many ways a great person, um, is it, it, completely unredeemable right, because of the fact of the society they've been acculturated in and the negative definitions that they've, you know, bought in around people of color. You know, you can't go back and change that person if, you know, based upon your new learning about how some racism functions, you now look at that person and say, like, this person is all bad and unredeemable. However, if you go and you educate that person and they still choose to actively live out those realities, that's something very different. But the reality is most people in America don't have conversations about race. Most people in America are not exposed to healthy, productive conversations about racism. A vast majority of Americans are racially illiterate. And you can grow up in America, go through our entire education system, from pre-K through 12, through college, through graduate school, and never one time have to critically analyze whiteness, never one time have to critically analyze how systemic racism functions in our society. You can be extremely well-educated, ed you can have a great job, you can make good money, you can be influential and never in your life had to um, face the reality of how systemic racism um, creates disparate outcomes for people along racial lines. And so in that way, I can meet somebody who is very well educated, not used to not understanding something, and teach them the most elementary, um, elementary kind of concepts around race, and that person feels a feeling they're not used to feeling. They feel you know, maybe not as intelligent, or they feel um, intimidated by the content. Um, they feel that their worldview is being completely questioned. I think mean, that's why I do the work in schools, because we have to change that. We need to develop children across racial lines who have literacy around race. And one of the reasons why, um, and, you know, whether it be the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the Civil Rights Movement, or any, the Black Power Movement, any movement that we've had, in America to navigate these conversations, we haven't had the critical base of white allies to really truly tip the scale to make revolutionary change because so many people in America are racially illiterate. And so even the good people who want to work on behalf, you know, of these causes, um, it, it's inaccessible to them because no one has taught them how to speak the language. No one has taught them how to see the cues. No one has taught them how to avoid making um, simple mistakes or detours when conversations about race come up. And so a vast majority of people just stay on the sidelines um, because they don't have, they don't feel like they have the tools to um, do anything or to learn. And right now, because we're in the middle of the woke Olympics, um, it's not really necessarily the best environment for people to, um, there, there isn't this kind of like beginner school that we need for people of all ages, right? Because if you go onto social media, you say the wrong thing, you're going to get dragged in the comments <laughs> until the end of the world. And now, you know, you say, well, shoot, I'm not going to do that again. Um, and so we just keep having this cycle um, go around, around, around again. Yeah, I, I have to say, one of the things I was sort of happy about in the wake of, I, I mentioned Charlottesville earlier, but after that happened, I did see people having a conversation that says, listen, 
racists are not these mythical vampire creatures that, you know, I couldn't be a racist. I'm a good person. I couldn't be a racist. I, you know, I'm nice to the black kid who lives on my street. Right. I think it was it was this understanding or at least I hope it was an understanding that racists are not these monsters who, you know, they pull off their human mask and it's, oh, my God, you know. It's like goosebumps. Yeah, exactly. And I think helping people understand that, you know, racists could be your son who you love, your husband who says, you know, who says, who who tells, quote, off-color jokes, right? It could be, you know, people in your family. It could be you. It could be your cousins. And I think sort of this letting people understand that, you know, I think for so long in popular culture, when you deal with racists, they're, quote unquote, the bad guy in the movie. And it's very clear, you know, this is a right. bad thing. This is, he has all the markers of a character I'm supposed to root against. Uh, and in reality, it's all of us, you know, none of us are immune to right. it. And I think helping people understand that you don't have to be burning a cross on someone's lawn to be a racist and what that means and sort of starting there and starting at home and in their own backyards, I think was really important and something that I don't think we've really, at least in my opinion, I don't think that we had really seen before. Yeah, and I think, you know, extrapolating that idea, I think you're absolutely right, and extrapolating that idea even further, you know, I think that people could, you know, when people see things like Dylan Roof and what he did um, and what happened with, um, you know, obviously Charlottesville and, and these, like, white supremacists, and you say, like, oh, well, that person has a normal job and that person could be working right next to me. I think there's still even some comfort in that. I think in my mind, you know, I tell people oftentimes, there's a place in my brain for white supremacists. I can, in some ways, understand a person who has been acculturated to hate somebody else and is holding on to that hatred because of, you know, their self-identity, their self-worth um, is tied up in having to put somebody lower than them. You know, maybe they have low self-esteem or, um, you know, it's they whatever, whatever drives a person to believe that their self-concept is derived from somebody being lower than them. I, there's a place in my brain where I can understand that person. The person who I don't understand, the person who I lose sleep over, and this is similar to Dr. King's quote about um, white moderates, right, is the white bystander or the white liberal, right, who says all the right things, who tells you that they're going to show up, who who will tell you up and down that they're not racist, who may even post on their Facebook wall an article or a video or whatever the case may be, but there's nothing actual in their lived experience to mitigate their own complicity in systemic racism or to, you know, create better outcomes for other people. And so I think, like, you know, if we were to look at society as this, like, bell curve, which, you know, that's probably not the best example (laughs) to use for a number of reasons, but, you know, let's say you have a small percentage of just your guttural, like, I'm all the way out white supremacist person, right? You have this large mass of people in the middle who are bystanders. You have a small percentage of people who are, I'm woke, I'm, I'm actively fighting against systemic racism. The people that we need to move are the people who are in the middle, right? I'm not going to lose sleep over, you know, getting a white supremacist to like me. You know, I could care less. Um, but the nice white lady who calls the police on the person at Starbucks or the teacher who sends the black kid out of class three to t- five times more than they send the white kid out of class or the parent who, um, you know, won't allow their kid to play a sport, you know, in a certain neighborhood, go 
go play a game in a certain neighborhood because they're afraid of the people who live in that neighborhood. Like these are the these are the people who maintain systemic racism. These are the people who vote in politicians who don't have uh, intentional um, lens around what racism is. And what we see is that the vocal people, the vocal white supremacists, the vocal people who want to protect white dominance, they're able to get policies passed. In Louisiana, we have a Blue Lives Matter law, you know, um, which suggests that any sort of um, assault against a police officer or, or in some cases even resisting arrest can be charged with a hate crime. So, you know, you have people all over the nation who are trying to uh, get police reform um, into policy, right, and facing dramatic resistance and then really quietly right under our noses a, a law that's named after the Black Lives Matter movement um, is passed to protect law enforcement officers more than what they're already protected as a result of um, Alton Sterling's murder, you know, immediately after Alton Sterling's murder, um, this law is, is passed. And so there's this buffer of bystanders who don't say anything, who don't do anything, and the people who have evil and malicious intent um, are allowed to rule the day. And so those are the people that I lose sleep over, um, you know, are the people who consider themselves to not be racist, who consider themselves to be good people, but don't do much or very little to, you know, put some skin in the game to challenge the system. I remember growing up in school, you know, when we would learn about, like, you know, I went to predominantly white schools for a, a, a good majority of my life. Um, we would learn about, like, slavery. Um, we learned about the civil rights movement. And, you know, my white peers would turn around and they would look at me and they would say, yeah, or, you know, like, I would, I would have, you know, drank from the colored water fountain. Or I would have, I would have walked with you to the front of the line. I would have, I would have marched alongside of you, right? And, you know, People feel really good about that. You know, and then I, I, I look at what people are doing now. One, I've unfriended most of you all on Facebook <laughs> because of the racist things that you post. But also, like, you're not showing up to the Black Lives Matter um, marches. You're not putting any emotional labor into creating a better society for people of color. When people of color are facing the same forms of discrimination that they were facing then, you're not doing it. Your parents didn't do it. Your grandparents didn't do it. So at the end of the day, um, you know, as Dr. King said, right, you know, it's, it's the white moderate, um, not the Ku Klux Klan or the white citizenship counselor um, that, you know, allows for systemic racism to continue to move because um, they choose comfort over justice. And, um, you know, as long as we choose comfort over justice, people with privilege won't use that privilege to challenge um, the systems that exist. We'll be back next week with another interview. But in the meantime, check out all the episodes from season one if you haven't heard them. And maybe even go back and listen to the ones if you've already heard them. Afropunk Solution Sessions is a co-production between Afropunk and How Stuff Works. Your hosts are Bridget Todd and Eves Jeffcoat. Executive co-producers are Julie Douglas, Jocelyn Cooper, and Quan Latif-Hill. Dylan Fagan is supervising producer and audio engineer. Many, many thanks to Casey Pegram and Annie Reese for their production and editorial oversight. And many thanks to our on-the-ground Atlanta crew, Ben Bolin, Corey Oliver, and Noel Brown. The Underside of Power is performed by Algiers. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Afropunk.